Good morning. So I'd like to introduce you to a painting that probably most of us are familiar with. This is Warner Solomon's Head of Christ. It's a pr pretty familiar painting to you, right? Did you know that this is the most reproduced depiction of Jesus that there is? Over 500 million copies of this particular painting have, uh, have been estimated to exist in the world. That's enough for about one in three households in this world to own a particular depiction of this painting. Of course, they're all not full-size portraits, right? And there's a, this accounts for things like, I don't know, candles and wallpaper and lunch boxes. I, I don't know what all they put this on, right? But it's still a huge number, right? It's so familiar that I would dare to say that I didn't even need to introduce the fact that this is a depiction of the Jesus of Nazareth, whom you and I both call Lord and Savior of this whole universe and our own lives. But there's a problem with this, isn't there? Maybe actually several problems with this as you look at this, as far as just the accuracy of this particular painting. Well, uh, he's handsome, right? He's a handsome guy on there. He's, he's pretty Western-looking, in my opinion, uh, he's regal and serene, and, and most notably, I, th I think it's just that he's European in both facial structure and coloring, right? None of these are accurate depictions of Jesus as far as the scripture is concerned. And a lot of people noted that, and so back in 2002, a group of scientists, anthropologists, forensic archaeologists got together in Israel and uh, gathered bone fragments and skulls of those that lived in Jesus' day, the males that lived in Jesus' day. And the thought was, if we can gather all of these up, and we can kind of come up with a composite, a mosaic of, of what an average Jewish man looked like in Jesus' day, we will at least get closer to what the Jesus that you and I worship uh, looks like than so many of the other artistic depictions of that. Do you want to see what they came up with? Here it is. What do you think? Was that what you expected, right? Was that an expectation of yours to have that image up in front of you? Now, I, I want to be clear, right? This is not the actual, an actual depiction of Jesus, but the chances are a lot higher that Jesus looked more like this composite person than Warner Solomon, Solomon's artist's imagination or any other artist's imagination has come up with. And I think that sometimes we've fallen into a trap of having our own expectations of Jesus or something that's convenient about him that, that just matches what we want in our own lives about who he is or how we think he should be. But I think we all know this, hopefully we do, that Jesus is known for surprising and challenging people. And I have to wonder, are we even open, here sitting today in here as Christians, are we even open to knowing and being confronted by Jesus in new and impactful ways? Or are we content in accepting our own or another's artistic interpretation of him? Of course, this goes far beyond just what he looks like, doesn't it? It's, this is about coming to know him more completely on his terms through the scripture, even though it might shock or challenge me 
sometimes. And, and if you find this idea to be kind of a hard prospect of what does that even mean to, to know him more completely, right? I want you to know that you're not alone in that being a hard prospect. Even in his day, Jesus did not fit the mold of what Christ or Messiah should look like to many people. The Jewish assumption was that Messiah should look like Israel, the nation's savior, meaning that he should come riding in probably like on a war horse, dressed in kingly garb like King David, maybe have an army following him so that they could support him as he overtook Israel. And that was the idea, is that, they would over, that the Messiah would overthrow whatever oppressive government was there in charge, and they would re, he would help reestablish Israel as the dominant nation belonging to God. And I think that this is why so many struggled to see that a man who challenged not just the government, right, but the hearts and minds of people in ways that they didn't have a category for could ever be God's chosen one to redeem not only all of Israel, but all of the world back unto God. I want to make a bold statement about this challenging identity and, and sort of like almost this hidden nature about who he was. It was that way by design. He was challenging by design. He was somewhat hidden by design. The idea that Jesus was the Christ, it needed to be hidden in plain sight from all creation. Why? So God's plan through him would fully happen at just the right time. And the Apostle Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. When he's talking about Jesus, who is this secret, hidden wisdom of God, he writes, None of the rulers of this age understood this, that Jesus was this secret, hidden wisdom of God. Why? Because if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have known what it meant for him to be there on that cross for you and for me, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory, he says. In other words, Jesus and his purposes, they needed, to be so, uh, they needed to be hidden in plain sight so that no one, neither earthly rulers or otherworldly rulers, would be able to derail God's big scheme of being able to bring us, you and me, back to God. Because if they knew, they would have never let it happen. I believe this is what, at least in part, is happening. This hidden nature of Jesus is happening in the end of Luke when we get this very interesting little story about Jesus after his resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has risen from the grave and he's walking with a couple of uh, men along the road to a city called Emmaus in his resurrected body. So maybe that's part of what is going on here as well. But here's the point is they don't recognize him. They think that the story of Jesus of Nazareth is a tragedy. They've heard rumors about the body being missing, but they have just assumed that he is dead somewhere. And Jesus speaks into this, and he finally responds to them, Luke 24, 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And catch this part. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see what happened there, right? He had to lead them through the Old Testament for them to begin to recognize him for who he truly was. And later on, it finally dawns on them. This man that was walking along the road with us, that was the risen Christ. Hmm. To really get to know Jesus, you and I are forced to have to have the whole scope of human history through the Bible in our minds. And it's a task that is worthy of a lifetime of study and deep contemplation and consideration. After all, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had to have their eyes opened by Jesus himself, and he was literally there with them in the flesh. To truly know him is to go back to the beginning and read the scriptures through that lens which is Jesus. And here's the thing. If we don't make that a practice, we are going to miss something beautiful about him at the very least. Even worse than that, we are going to come up with an inaccurate representation of him in our minds. And even possibly worse than that, we may uh, push that inaccurate representation onto others as we present him. So here's the thing. I don't know that you have had this happen, right? Um, maybe a, a parent or, or a spouse has asked you to get something from the refrigerator. It's kind of what it's like, right? Parent or a spouse asks you to get something from the refrigerator, let's say the mustard, right? Karen says, David, go get the mustard. So I walk over to the refrigerator, open the door, and I look shelf after shelf, the doors. There is no mustard in this refrigerator. And I finally tell her that, Karen, I think we're out of mustard. But Karen calmly rises from her seat. She walks over to that very same refrigerator and pulls it right out of the door that was sitting right there in front of me the whole time. Right? Have you had something like that happen? Right? That's kind of what it's like when we encounter Jesus in the New Testament. As we look back into the scriptures, now that we know who or what we're looking for, he becomes incredibly obvious. And here's the thing, is to participate in this exercise of looking back to find Jesus, it's honorable, according to Acts 17. As the apostles were revealing Jesus' identity to the Jews there in Berea, it says that they, the Berean Jews, received the word of Jesus with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things about Jesus were so. They diligently studied and examined the scriptures to see if it was true that Jesus and his ministry to the cross were really what God had been talking about from the beginning. Here's a few things that I want to point out about this, right? Here's the first one. It wasn't immediately obvious to this population who were dedicated to the scriptures that you and I commonly call the Old Testament, that Jesus fit the profile of Messiah. It wasn't immediately obvious to them. Here's a second one. To seek the truth 
and the whole story of Jesus, they didn't just come up with stories and pictures that made him fit their picture of what Messiah should be. They went to the Old Testament to find out more. Here's a third one. This searching and seeking of Jesus at a level that, got, that goes beyond just the cursory understanding of who he is through the stories that we have of what he did says it's a noble activity, right? They're called noble because of it. My question to us is this. Are you and I ready to go deeper? Are we ready to go deeper? Listen, we're, we're being transformed. We're being transformed into the image of Jesus as we progress through this life. Wouldn't we want to know that image that we are adopting and that we're being adopted into? And, and in a world, right, that desperately needs to see the real Jesus, the authentic Jesus, do we have an accurate picture of the whole story to present to them? So, are you ready? Are you ready to see what has been hidden in plain sight for us to experience if we simply would have the eyes to see? So do you? Do I have the eyes to see? Let's make no mistake about it, he was there in the beginning, right? The entirety of the gospel of John is dedicated to this notion. Even the opening sentence of that gospel affirms that the word, who is Jesus, was in the beginning, and he was with God, and he was God. So, for the next several weeks, here's the plan. We're going to be looking at Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. Does that sound Okay. Good, because that's the plan whether you thought it sounded okay or not, right? Because that's, that's where we're going with this. Okay. Okay, so we're likely familiar with the fact that there are prophecies about the coming Messiah. And we're going to look at some of those. Uh, but there are other foreshadowing moments in the Scripture that help us to understand Jesus and His purposes more completely as well. And I, and I want to take a minute just to kind of show you uh, what I mean with one of what I think is the first, one of the first instances, uh, and it's actually recorded in all things as a, a riddle, what I would consider a riddle. So just to kind of set the stage here, after the first week of creation, God has finished creating, and uh, the pinnacle of his creation, the humans, they have received their particular instructions about being fruitful and multiplying, tending to the earth and bringing it to a place of, of abundance. And they have this beautiful place to live and work and walk with their creator. And the one restriction that they are given is don't eat of this one particular tree, right? We track in so far. We know this story, okay? Everything is going well in this story up until the point that we are introduced to the serpent, and through misrepresentation and deceit, he convinces the humans to eat from that forbidden tree. God comes to confront them, both the man and the woman and the serpent all at the same time. And I want to start to read to you out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. God comes and says to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, serpent deceived me and I ate. Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God curses this serpent, who by the way is more than just a snake. His uh, this, the, his snakiness, his serpentine nature is going to be applied to all forms of evil as the Bible story progresses. Okay? But then we get to what some have referred to as the primeval or the proto-euangelion. Right? Those are, these are big ways, the proto-gospel, to say this is the first time that we have in Scripture that God is proclaiming the good news. And it comes to us in the form of what I consider a riddle. Verse 15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so this first telling of the conflict between God and the serpent comes to us in, in, in a riddle. What, what makes it a riddle? Right? Because you'll notice that it's not God crushing the serpent's head. It's a human. Do you see that, right? God himself is prophesying that there will be a day when evil, uh, that when the evil that's entered into this world through the serpent, it, it will culminate in this mutual blow between that which evil produced and a human being. Can you see that from the words there up on the screen, right? Or in your text, right? That's there. And I think most of us who have experienced this 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, immediately want to jump to the cross and say, that was the moment, right? Satan struck down Jesus. The blow was thought to be final, but Satan lost the war when Jesus rose on the third day. And, and I, I want you to hear me clearly. We're not wrong in saying that. We're not wrong at all in saying that. However, to simply state it in this way and to move on is to miss just an epic story in which you and I and Jesus all participate. After all, if you are reading this story for the first time and haven't met the person of Jesus yet, you might just be looking through the story that has just begun for this snake-crushing, dual-blow moment to happen. And you might actually have some questions that you want to ask about this little riddle about who is this serpent? How does he function? Who will be the human one that deals the final deadly blow to him? How will it be done? See, it's not immediately obvious that Jesus is going to fit into this role. This conflict that was started, you see, it didn't just happen with Jesus. The enmity that he's talking about there, it's there during the whole narrative of Scripture. As God continues to choose people and call them, we see this concerted effort from some force seeking out God's chosen to destroy them. We see God warning Cain that if he's not careful, this snakiness is going to overwhelm him. And it does. He ends up killing his brother Abel, doesn't he? At one point, the serpent's influence is, it has so infected all of humanity that the whole world must be flooded. We see the serpent's influence over Abraham and Sarah as they try to rush God's plan to conceive a child. The serpent's influence oppresses all of God's people into slavery in Egypt. And wouldn't you know it, there was a determined effort to kill all of the Israelite baby boys in Egypt. But a special boy, 
Moses, he was saved through water. From a literary perspective, Moses is used to defeat Egypt, which is equated oftentimes with the serpent as far as the languaging is concerned. And he's used again to defeat literal serpents in the wilderness. So, so maybe Moses is this snake crusher that you and I have been looking for from the very beginning. Here's the point. Time and time again, we see some evil force focusing its energies on God's chosen people, specifically the males. Why? Because God prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day a male human will destroy the serpent, and that serpent is looking to deal a blow that will destroy him first. Jesus is born into this epic narrative. And wouldn't you know it, just as there was infanticide imposed on Israel back in Egypt, the serpent tries to destroy Jesus as other Jewish baby boys are killed. You see, the serpent has been trying ever since the beginning to beat this predicted head crushing by God's special person. And I think, suspecting that Jesus was that serpent crusher that had been predicted, Satan tries to remove Jesus' power as he tempts him in the wilderness as well. As you know, Jesus passes those tests. Time after time, the enemy's efforts are thwarted to some, until somewhere, at some point, he hatches a cosmic plan to kill the offspring of the woman that was predicted so long ago. And Jesus is arrested. He's tried. He's abused and tortured. He's hung on a cross, and the whole world goes dark as he breathes his last and proclaims, it is finished. There must have been a celebration from the evil one when he heard those words and the body of Jesus slumped lifeless on that cross. You see, from the serpent's perspective, he'd won. As the body of Jesus laid in the tomb, the seal of death, the serpent's victory were all but assured. He'd crushed the man before the man could crush him. All of creation must have felt a loss as even Jesus' own disciples scattered to the wind to avoid their own demise. But it is finished was not a statement of defeat, but of completion, because God's man and God's plan had been hidden, albeit in plain sight. The serpent didn't realize that he had walked right into the trap. Because sometime, early on the third day, there was a heartbeat. Life-giving breath came back into those lungs. The stone was rolled away, and Jesus walked out of that tomb in victory. Let me say that again. Jesus walked out of that tomb in victory. Amen? 
Why? Because that victory meant that the very thing that was crowning the head of Satan, death itself, had been defeated in those moments. In a singular moment, Christ's victory over the serpent became not only his victory, but your victory and my victory as well. Because oppressive evil that has been in pursuit of you and me since the beginning can no longer keep us from God and the destiny that we have alongside of him. And the serpent, he's been, on put, he's been put on notice. His days are numbered. Because Jesus, who was hidden in plain sight, dealt a head-crushing blow when death became a thing of the past for him and then passed that power on to us. Here's the thing. I look out at the world around me, especially right now with the news cycle that's going on. Then I consider my own life, my own sinfulness, and things that are going on in my life, and I, it's, it's hard to imagine that God is winning. It, it feels like Satan is winning so often, and I think that this is where Jesus' victory breeds hope into those situations and allows us, you and me, to be instruments of peace and godliness in this world of war and, and, and in my own situations as well. Why? Because greater is he who is in you, who is in me, than he who is in the world. And I'm convinced, this is why Paul says in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How about that? He will soon crush Satan under your feet. You'll notice that with the Spirit of God and Christ living inside of us, it is now us who are trampling on the head of the serpent. And so we become characters that continue this epic snake-crushing narrative every time we pass the test of evil in our own lives, when we move toward God rather than moving toward the world, and when we tend to the needy, and when we spread Jesus and his message to the world, we continue to position the snake's head under the foot of Christ and our own. And we look forward to a day because of Jesus when the serpent's influence is no more. Revelation is clear on that point that that day is coming and just as sure as Jesus walked out of that tomb, the serpent will eventually be completely destroyed. All of his influences will be completely destroyed. Until then, are we seeing him, Jesus, for who he is? Or are we seeing some caricature of him that we've painted in our own minds? Do we know his whole story as expressed in all of Scripture? As I said before, it's worthy of a lifetime of studying the person of Jesus, not just through the lens of the Gospels. Go, go do that. Go study him, understand him deeply, deeply through the Gospels. But then, go experience him through all of Scripture. If you've put him on in baptism and proclaimed him as Lord of all, including your life, you've joined in this action of crushing the serpent already. We're living out that on a daily basis as we war against sin and the flesh. So what are we doing now to see him more clearly and to get to know him on his terms? This is your life. 
This is your story. It's my story, right? If I've been baptized into him and called him the Lord of my life. Maybe that's not you yet. Maybe you want this to be a part of your story and you need to proclaim Jesus as your Lord and be baptized into his name. Or maybe you have another need this morning as you're considering all of the things that we're talking about. We stand here and we want to serve and honor you, pray with you, and help you out wherever we can. If you have a need, would you come while we stand and sing?